Digital 410 Media proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Dennis Blocker. Joining us now for this one-on-one interview, actually it's a one-on-two. When I say one-on-one, I mean Jeff and Dennis aren't here. Um, I'm very thrilled. You know, we've had a lot of people on this podcast, a lot of authors, um, screenwriters. We get to talking about research, how to research to do a book, or research on how to get all the authenticity for a screenplay, or even researching your relatives and the role they played in the war. But I think, despite the fact we've had Luke on here multiple times, I think it's the first time we've had the opportunity to talk to two gentlemen who've done research, but not for a book, not for a screenplay, but something just as important, if not more important to this hobby, and that is bringing artifacts back from the dead so that we can wear them as part of our impressions, and I'm wearing the one we're going to talk about today. So joining us right now to go down the whole story of how this came to be, what it goes into reproducing authentically stitch correct garments from world war ii for modern day use join us now is charles i love this part charles w mcfarland you got to keep the w (laughs) you know my name's donald preston abernathy and i used to joke around as a kid that's not the type of name you can put on a mailbox in front of a double white trailer donald (laughs) preston abernathy so charles w mcfarland and his friend josh kerner josh charles how y'all doing tonight doing great doing pretty good you know, speaking of stellar names, I was one generation from being a third. My grandfather was Donald Preston Abernathy Jr., but then my father was Glenn David Abernathy, and then I was Donald Preston Abernathy. I was so close to actually being a fourth because it uh. was Donald Preston Abernathy Jr., then my dad. I could have been fourth. You definitely can't put that on a mailbox in front of a trailer. Oh, most but certainly. I digress. Gentlemen, let's talk about this awesome two episodes in a row now I'm pointing out that I've been wearing this. The jungle sweater. (laughs) And first thought is, fellas, why not just go online and type in World War II reproduction jungle sweater and order one off eBay somewhere? Why, (laughs) why go through the hassle of, of recreating this? I mean, they're, they're all over the place clearly. Right. I mean, I see them on Amazon. I see them on Timu. I see them. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, actually when I was researching this show, after I got this one, I, I had that same very question. I saw one. It said World War II jungle sweater, and I noticed it had the thick vertical cords like an Irish garment, holes, and I was like, no, that's more like 1980s military sweater. So why why go through the hassle of recreating this when you can clearly just buy them any old place? <laughs> um, do you want me to take this one, or do you want to go, Josh? I'll let you take this one to start yeah. off. I mean, I think simply, like, you know, um, I think there's only been one reproduction run of uh, jungle sweaters, and that was from. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Josh. That was QMI, right? Yeah, QMI um, did a very, very, very small run, like six, seven years ago, and that was it, a real flash in the pan. If did they will. do that for a movie production? I don't think so. I think they just did it because the guy wanted to have them, and I don't think any. He probably was small enough that it was like the minimum size as like a test strike from whoever his manufacturer is overseas. And that's why it sold out so quickly was that there wasn't much to sell. And because nobody really expressed interest in him at the time, he had no real inkling to go back to that. Well, uh, because and, I was thinking the yeah, other day, and I think it also, it's kind of something that's kind of a, uh, paradoxical, I think in a lot of repros, which is we get a lot of repros of the stuff that you can find, 
relatively easily. <laughs> and it's the stuff you can't find at all that we don't get any repros of because usually there's not one knocking around for someone to take apart. Well, yeah, that's, that's I, the thing that Jeff and I have kind of been talking for years about World War II content, especially when it comes to television. It's like, yeah, there's plenty of TV, you know, docuseries on D-Day, and there's plenty of them on, you know, uh, Bastogne and Operation Market Garden, and there's, you know, but we try to talk about topics that you can't hear everywhere else. And back to what I was saying, too, is I was thinking the other day, I was like, well... Has there been a modern day movie, World War II? Well, now, when I say modern day, I'm talking like 1970s and up. Because clearly, anything made from the 40s and 50s, they were using original gear. But I was saying, was there any? Has there been any World War II productions that featured men wearing army jungle sweaters? Because obviously, a lot of times, when there are rarity reproduction items, usually they come from a production house or somebody <laughs> developed them for a movie or a TV series. But I got to thinking, no, I I can't think off the top of my head of a series where you see somebody wearing one no and the one series that could have had them would have been the pacific but they don't really have them and that kind of is the inkling for why we started on this road was that the initial plan was uh to have them for the backhander event which is part of which was part two of what's going to be a uh a quad event series following the first marine division from guadalcanal through okinawa in backhander being uh, essentially part two of that event series and the first marine division getting a large number of these as part of that event and charles got very got intrigued by this and kind of decided to take the reins and getting it reproduced and that's kind of was thinking what kind of got this project started yeah and um you know I th like josh kind of came i mean josh said like you know i kind of got invested in it which which i did but um, you know, I had just kind of started out saying like, oh, you know, maybe I'll come out to Backhander. Um, and then Josh kind of approached me with this project in mind, like, you know, kind of my background, you know, kind of I had, I've worked kind of in and around the garment industry for, you know, almost 10 years now on and off in different capacities, both like covering it in a media perspective and then also kind of working inside of it. So I kind of had kind of a loose network of people that I could call on for some help. Um, and Josh kind of brought the project to me and we kind of, you know, we kind of ran with it together. Yeah. And it's, and this was like a real good place to start because, so to give some historical background on this garment for people who aren't familiar with it, uh, the jungle sweater is its colloquial name. Its official name was shirt knit olive drab. And it was originally developed for ski troops uh, in 1942, the U.S. Army at first had a really heavy, long underwear shirt, and the ski, the mountain troops that were being developed at the time, they're like, "This is overly heavy. You can't really adjust how warm it is or cold it is when you're doing all this physical exertion." And the Army went about designing this lightweight knit shirt that has a button collar neck and also is importantly an olive drab green because at the time the underwear was still white uh, which lacks any camouflage qualities mm -hmm. and in august of 1942 um uh stillwell goes to washington dc on his on a stopover eventually going to the china burma india theater to start to look at the office of quartermaster general for all the stuff that he will want to out 
jungle troops and there hasn't really been any specifically designed jungle equipment besides some stuff that had been tested in Panama in late 1940 and 41 and going through there he actually chooses a number of interesting items that will become uh things that we can't picture fighting in the jungle without uh and one of those you know there's the jungle food bags that start off for mountain troops there's the poncho which for a place that doesn't get any rain was initially designed for desert troops Funnily, funnily I enough, I guess maybe for a sunshade. Like if you guys had to, if you had time, you hurry up and wait. Like okay, dig your foxholes and then put up your sunshades. And then he saw the jungle sweater, or sorry, the knit shirt, and was like, you know, this is going to probably this will be more useful than like a heavy wool blanket in the jungle because you're going to it's hot in the jungle. However, when it rains, when you're in the highlands, it will still get cold enough and a lightweight knit wool shirt will keep you warm enough and will not be as hot and bulky as a blanket and will not be as hard to carry. So they chose that and it kind of just rolled on from there. So by the point, by December of 1943... It's not even a mountain warfare item anymore. It's purely a jungle war fighter item. And that does it, that does make sense. Um, when I lived in Ohio, before I moved to California in 2001, I was yeah. watching these California-based surfing contests, and you'd see the surfers on the beach wearing a hooded sweatshirt. To me, living in Ohio, I'm like, you're in California, for God's sakes. What's with the sweatshirt? Then I moved out to California. Um, yeah, the sun goes down, it gets goddamn cold. I would keep a hooded sweatshirt or three in my car at all times because you'd go out in the day. And if you go hit the bar scene at night, the winds blow off of the Pacific ocean, which by the way is colder than hell. We lived in Long Beach, California in a bungalow that was built in the thirties that did not have central air conditioning because we lived close enough to the water. I think maybe my dad lived, moved there. And then I moved there after nine 11 when, I got laid off from the ambulance plant, and that's when I decided to go to school for computers, which is what I've been doing for 20 years now. And so right out, a few months after 9-11, I moved there, and my dad said, I don't have, we don't have central air. I'm like, it's California. How do you not have central air? Well, <laughs> we live so close to the Pacific Ocean, the wind would blow that cold water just like a swamp cooler. You know, you, you say you lived in Louisiana for a while. You see the people who couldn't afford AC, they'd, you, you see videos all the time, you blow some put a fan on a block of ice. Well, basically the Pacific ocean is a giant block of ice that wind would blow in. And I think maybe two weeks out of the year, we would turn on a portable air conditioner, but other than that, we just cracked the windows open. And so it yeah. makes perfect sense that in a jungle environment, especially a damp one, once yeah. that sun goes down and especially after you've been sweating all day, you're going to, you get cold to the bone. And as you yeah. were saying, um, anybody who's even anybody who's ever done a living history event, who's even slept out on the ground in Ohio knows that when Sunday comes and you pull that wool blanket up, you have every leaf, twig, stick, spider web stuck to that thing. They're yeah. unwieldy and they're Velcro. And so it makes sense that if you can minimize, if not alleviate wool blankets and find an alternative to that, a it's they they get heavy, especially when they're wet and B they get snagged on everything. And so it makes perfect sense. Exactly. Yeah. And, Josh kind of kind of alluded to this too when he was kind of talking about how they were adopted, but kind of you know you hit on it right, which is that 
when wool's wet, it insulates as opposed to cotton, which would be like, you know, the HVT uniforms, right? Like these, these wool knit shirts are going to insulate you in the, in the damp and in the cold in a way that no other kind of um, cotton garment could possibly do. And yeah. no one says it better than Robert Leckie when he's explaining the goofy look on his face when he's laying on his cot wrapped up in his wet blanket and he's smiling because it's so warm because they are in the jungle. They've been freezing in Cape Gloucester, but he discovered that it, nothing's warmer than a soaking wet wool blanket. And so he just laid there like a kid on Christmas, just snug in his wet wool blanket. Yeah. And so these got, like I said, really popular. Um, they became part of the Army's jungle clothing list, which meant that the 1st Marine Division got a large number of them in preparation for the invasion of Cape Gloucester, but Army troops wore these from the jungles of Burma to Bougainville, and the Marines wore these not only in Cape Gloucester, but through the end of the war. We know, for instance, uh, John Bassalone specifically had one, uh, and there's film footage of them unloading John Bassalone's Haversack after he was killed in action on Iwo Jima, yep. and one of the first things they pull out of it is his jungle sweater. So these were used from Cape Gloucester through Iwo Jima and Okinawa, the whole time frame of the war. And let's not overlook, and I was talking to Charles about this on Facebook, because I I got into the Merrill's Marauders a few years back, yeah. and I wanted to work on an impression. They were used in Burma, and yeah. it's actually pictured and explained in this this little cute thin book plus the novel I have that basically the soldiers could wear whatever they want. They had to carry a certain amount of ammo. They had to carry an M1 Garand. And uh, I think f uh, they could either wear boots or jungle shoes. But as far as the pack goes, they could uh, choose whatever pack they wanted. Most of them chose a musette bag. And most yeah. of them had a jungle sweater, HPT jacket, the HPT uh, pants with the cargo pockets on it, leggings, boots, and Daisy May, as well as their helmet. And then... When it came to uh, fighting knives and machetes, machetes basically everybody had, but they packed everything in and out on mules, and so they relied heavily on their jungle sweater because they spent, for the kind of like the um, raiders, they had a short shelf life, but while they were in action, you know, they were more self-contained than uh, the raiders were. They were dropped off and left alone. Oh, yeah, and for sure. And the usage and love affair that the military had with these didn't end with the war. For instance, here I have my collection of jungle sweaters and this <laughs> one is an original that was manufactured in 1948 and then this is hold that up again hold that up real quick for our youtube audience and let me get a good view of the label yeah, here that's what we need yeah <laughs> is, is we'll get that later because uh yeah we'll get to the label later maybe that's where that came from <laughs> that's where yeah. they, they saw that and then and then another one and this and you could kind of see from the color they even made it into Vietnam, and they stopped producing them in 1967. And the Vietnam ones are distinguishable because the World War II, the the post-war ones are this brown OD number 33 color. And then in the 1950s, they switched to OG 208, which is this greener color that's different than the olive drab of the World War II. But now these were used in Vietnam right until the adoption of the tricot nylon sleep shirts that everybody is familiar with and sees yeah. all the time in surplus shots so this and that and once you see the sleep shirt you kind of see the uh common heritage but it kind of shows like this was a really popular useful item and you could see that today in how many times you could go to the smart wool catalog or whatever and see essentially the same product 
being sold to hikers and outdoorsmen for almost exactly the same purpose, a lightweight wool shirt to use in the outdoors that will keep you warm despite when it gets wet with sweat and everything like that. Now, with the exception of the color change, as far as yeah. cut, uh, materials, um, buttons, was there any major improvements, for lack so, of a better phrase, or deviation from the original? So, yeah. So, the change, so there's changes in the colors, of course. There's changes in the buttons, and the buttons change both in color that kind of mostly correspond to the color change of shirt. So when it's OG208, they choose a color that matches the color of the shirt. When it's OD number uh, 33, they choose a color that kind of more matches the color of the shirt. But early during World War II, the color changes, even though the shirts stay mostly the same color, and it mostly has to do with the specific type of plastic that they're using. It's going from a vegetable-based plastic to a more synthetic plastic as the war is going on which we replicate in having uh, go. So this is actually the original that we sent to China to help get these reproduced and sacrifice the button and some stitching on it. And you could see they replicated the early color here. Here's the reproduction. Got it pretty much dead on matched. Let me, and while we're talking about buttons real quick, before we change, did yeah. the Vietnam era continue with the two-hole button, or did they say, let's yep. go four-hole for longevity and and durability? Nope, they continue to use the cat-eye buttons. Okay, so they still did. Because I know, like, on the Vietnam era, like, blouses and stuff, don't they use the four-hole buttons on a lot of that stuff? Yeah, and on, when they do the tricot sleep shirt, they use the four-hole button as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, so this is the early war. This is another early war one that has the lighter color and it's they, like I said, it's just a change in the formula of the plastic, but the bit, the biggest change in cut is the earliest war ones are about one and a half to two inches longer in the body to make sure that they kind of stay tucked in, which gives them a really long look while the later Vietnam. Yeah, ones there you go. Yeah. Now, let me say as somebody who's six foot five, I can appreciate a long waist. So, <laughs> so you can see, here's a Vietnam one. Great for concealed uh, carry, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> my World War II one. Oh wow, that's tremendously yeah. shorter. Yeah, and and try to continue, Josh. Oh, and I don't know. I've never gotten to handle QMI's reproductions. I don't know how many other people kind of knew of that change before we kind of delved into this project. And I think uh, being able to make sure we have the very early one that actually has the extra length, which makes it use more usable for tall guys in the hobby, which often <laughs> guys are at the short end of the stick, uh -huh, is kind of nice. Let's uh, take a. Let's I don't know if we're gonna get into it, but like if we go, you know, kind of talk about kind of how we got. Well, that's what I was getting ready to say. Let's go ahead and oh, okay. let's go ahead and yeah. pause the conversation. Let's go ahead and put the uh, cart back behind the horse. Um, <laughs> When it comes to you guys having this conversation, like, hey, we got this World War II event coming up, which, by the way, mm -hmm. I'm not slamming my my ETO living historians, but I got to say, from the last five, six years, from doing some Marine events or dreaming of doing some Marine events and being part of the conversations on Facebook, Marine events are more about authenticity when it comes to uniform than the ETO guys are. 
and I don't know if that's just something that has to do with the Marine guys or what, but like I know when we did Tarawa and Peleliu down in, in, in um, Alabama, our uniform codes were very strict. It had, you know, you have to have the right color piss cutters, the right canteens and all that. So when you guys came up with this idea, hey, these sweaters existed, they were issued, we they're not available, but we want this authenticity. How do you guys go from having that conversation, whether it's over some beers, over some text messages, over whatever, to how do we get the ball rolling? Because everybody has great ideas. Great ideas come in the night, and either you get up and you Google it and you find out 10 other people already did it, or you say, I'm going to do this, and then by Friday you've moved on to the next thing. How do you guys get from this conversation to actually getting this done, and what's the steps in between? So I think the first two steps were the steps that I took, which was one – having you know i have at this point four or five original ones in very good condition which gives you makes me more willing to send one off across the world to as a sample the other big thing is for god a decade now i've been going to various archives across the east coast and digitizing documents relating to the quartermaster corps during world war ii and one of the documents i had scanned was the specification for this garment and um, and we're lucky that while many of the cut and sew clothing specifications are a little bit more general and hazy on some certain measurement details the knit garment ones are extremely specific and give you all the major necessary dimensions where it tells you how long this this seam has to be on the sleeve how long the body seam has to be where the buttons are etc 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 in very detail and not just for one size but for a whole schedule of sizing meaning that someone like charles can take that world war ii spec document and kind of convert it into something that a modern manufacturer is used to working with. And you can you take that research, you bring it with an, with an original garment that they can use for both color samples for the for the wool, for the weight of the wool, or the buttons, and to check off some more minor measurements against the spec sheet. And it, it makes life a lot easier and, al and allowed Charles to do what he ended up doing. And I'll let him take over from well, there. Well, I was going to say, clearly, yeah, Josh has I mean, a high, think... uh, clearly, Josh has a high passion for garments and <laughs> yeah. the history. Charles, totally. how, <laughs> how do you get brought into this? And, and, and what part of this ball do you pick up and run across the field with? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, you know, again, like, kind of like backing up a lot, like, you know, Josh and I have known each other since we were 12. You know, we've been reenacting together, you know, since we were 12 years old so kind of and the history goes, goes now, so we're, we're we've been doing this <laughs> our friends yeah, yeah, listed in the army yeah <laughs> um so you know that kind of we go back you know a long long ways um and um i think also kind of before we get to what i was doing i think it also just speaks so much to kind of josh's um you know kind of the way he does his research right he's like you scanned this spec you know what like you know, seven years ago, well, well before we knew we were going to do this project. And I think that's the kind of the part of it, too, is just like being able to like hoover up the information when you have access to it is such an important key to kind of like, you know, we just got lucky in a real way. Because I think, Josh, I think you can attest to this. Like, I think the archive where you got this spec from, I don't know if you could get in there today. 
I do not know if I can because of just the way things have changed and the personnel has changed over and everything like that. It was a lucky, it was a lucky time, and I had a friend make make it so we were able to get most everything we could out of there in the short time we had. Now, yeah, real quick, so John. I, I think like, you know, that's such a big part of this story is like having that available. Um, yeah. So you know, uh, yeah. So Josh comes to me. You know, my first instinct again, kind of as I as I said, you know, I I've kind of worked. Yeah, I'm in New York City. I, I've I've worked in um, you know, in, in the garment industry here and there. Mostly like you know, kind of I don't I don't make things. I write about things. So that's mostly what I've been doing. But working with people who do make things quite a bit. Um, so my first instinct was, all right. So let's get these made here. Let's get them made. You know, maybe we can find a close enough jersey. Um, we can find um, you know someone who can make these. Maybe in you know, I was working with a company at the time that was doing a lot of knitwear in Peru. I thought maybe, you know, that would be a good, you know, bet. Um, but really kind of what it came up to was, you know, um, <laughs> we couldn't find something close enough. We couldn't find, um, you know, our, the order minimums were too high um, was another one. And frankly, you know, for what it is and for the people who are going to, you know, be our customers, it was going to be too expensive. Let so me uh, pause you right of, there real quick. Yeah, because that's a key point. Too expensive. I remember about 10, 15 years ago, probably about 10, I was reading a Reader's Digest. And uh, the author of the article was writing about, the author was writing about another article that she had read. And she was interviewing a uh, pretty prominent fashion designer in New York. And they were walking through her New York based um, production plant. And the interviewer noticed and said, hey, try to, you know, interviewers love the gotcha moment, right? At least nowadays they do. And she said, hey, I can't help but notice that all your seamstress seem to be Asian or, or Hispanic. Do you do that because you get to pay them cheaper? And she said, no, I do that because American schools no longer teach home economics and Americans don't know how to sew. And so with that dying knowledge comes a bigger price tag and so when you're doing it here regardless what your personnel is you're going to pay them a livable wage especially when you're making high quality stuff and the less that knowledge is around the more valuable it becomes and so the price tag and so a lot of people and um perfect example not world war ii related at all not garment related at all i was watching mike rose podcast and he wanted to do an episode on bobbleheads. And he wanted to have some bobbleheads made for his his um, school that he does for fundraising to provide um, job training for people who want to go to school to learn to become welders, mechanics, what have you. But being micro, he said, I want my bobbleheads made in the United States. And he reached out and he said, I discovered that bobbleheads are actually hand-painted. They're hand-carved. And each one takes a person to do and even though the company I found in Philadelphia, they do all the design work, all the carving in clay, but because each bobblehead has to be hand-painted, they do it overseas. Otherwise, no one's going to pay for these bobbleheads. They'll be $180 a piece. The company agreed to have X amount of them painted here in-house. In but, yes, the truth is, especially when it comes to garments, you live in New York. The garment district ain't half as big as it once was. And the people who are producing it, once again, you're, you want to pay your people a livable wage, the price is going to go up. And so another perfect example, 
I bought a K-Bar folder off eBay. I got my K-Bar knife from my World War II, my Marine Corps impression, the fixed blade, but I bought a folder. Opened it up, and right on the blade said Made in China. I was like, well, that's suspicious. So I emailed K-Bar. Hey, I got this K-Bar folder, but it said Made in China. I just want to make sure I didn't get ripped off. This is a bootleg. And they said, no. All their fixed blade stuff's made in the United States, but sadly, our folded blade stuff, just to keep cost affordable and because of manufacturer availability, they're all made over in China. So it's just, it is what it is at this point. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to other industries, but I can say, especially in the garment industry, you know, it's, it's, there's a lack of, um, you know, there's a lack of workers, obviously, kind of, as you mentioned, but also, I mean, we're getting to the point where there's a lack of machinery um, and institutional knowledge, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, I think a, a really great example would be like, if anybody's into like, you know, uh, like raw denim, right? Like, you know, an American kind of classic that you can't really get. I want you know, those red line Levi's. Made in the United States anymore because the looms aren't here. Yep. You know, like there was one, there was one mill that did it and now they're gone. And, all of the machines are mostly in Japan now, right? So if you want like kind of your classic American denim, that's where you need to go, right? So I I think that's important. And I think something else too is that like, I think people can get a little hung up sometimes on, you know, um, on kind of where like, you know, made in America versus somewhere else. But, you know, I think the quality kind of around the world, you know, can speak for itself, which is you can get good quality stuff made, you know, essentially anywhere and you can get real like shit quality stuff made essentially anywhere um so kind of like you know yeah getting back to uh to these to, these, to the jungle sweaters though so kind of we were faced with this impasse i mean again i i think you know this project took way longer than you know we all expected um so you know i i think kind of to 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 ruin the ending a little bit we did not get these sweaters in time for backhander um so you know we, we started that project you know maybe like you know five to six months out i believe from backhander and you know we thought yeah, around this time last year yeah exactly it was around this time last year i, I remember because I, I was working on yeah i was trying to do this and work on my thesis at the same time for for grad school and it was so it's kind of balancing a lot but um so, you know, basically we were confronted with this thing. So, all right, so what could we do, right? You know, we, we can't get these things made here at a price point where we think people are going to buy into them. So that price point, by the way, was like looking at like upwards of like $300, for example, yeah. right? So not only do like, you know, we don't have the capital to put up to like mm-hmm. get to that stage, but we also- 500 of them. Sorry? You needed like 500 of them and each one would have cost $300 each. It was like, okay. There's no room yeah, for margin in that. Exactly, yeah. And it also, yeah. it also, frankly, would have been a lot more labor intensive for us, too, because I think, you know, part of what was great about working with Bronson is that, and I'll kind of get to that now, I'll kind of fast forward. So, you know, I, I cold reached out to Bronson um, and I kind of just, I sent them a, a DM on Instagram and I kind of just laid out the argument for, you know, like, this is who I am. This is the kind of stuff I've been up to. This is a product that, you know, I think you guys should bring to market. The reason is because no one has made this before except for this very limited run. You know, when I think about people who they are trying to emulate, I'm thinking about people like the Real McCoys or Buzz Rickson. Neither of those companies, kind of the gold standard for, you know, high-end repros, neither of those companies have touched this product. You know, this is could be a really interesting, you know, product for you to bring, you know, to the to the space. Um, so they were interested, um, which was great. And basically what I did from there was I kind of, and Josh alluded to this already, is I, I took the, the the government spec, you know, the, the quartermaster spec from 1942, um, which is what, like maybe like 10 plus pages, would you say, yeah. Josh? Yeah, that's you know, about it. And that, you know, and again, Josh kind of alluded to this, 
it doesn't just lay out kind of how to make the garment. It lays out how to, you know, how we're going to fold these things, how we're going to bail them into a size tariff and how we're going to put them in a box and how that box is going to get labeled. Stuff that right? Bronson doesn't care about. <laughs> yeah. 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 Stuff that, stuff that like I don't care about, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> so, there's only one person on this call that cares about that in any shape, way or form. Yeah. <laughs> so It's funny so you say that. I, I, I pour through this document. Yep. Um, and basically look for the things that are relevant for a modern day tech pack. So like a tech pack, kind of like maybe I'm not like the best person to explain this, but essentially what it is, it's not a pattern, but it is a kind of it, it's mostly on like, you know, the way it's done now. It's mostly a spreadsheet, you know, multiple you know slides on a spreadsheet. And it's just going to kind of lay out like, you know, the real like bare bones to details of what this garment is. Right. So, again, we're not doing you know, a pattern, right, which would be like your outline, but you're going to say like, okay, so for size 40, it's going to be 19 pit to pit. This is how to measure pit to pit. Here's a diagram of the, you know, this is all the stuff. This is the kind of, the kind of buttons we need. This is the button placement. It's all like that kind of stuff, but there's a very clear template that's used in modern garment manufacturing. How do you make that conversion? Because I have found that when it comes to measurements, things have changed over the years. For example, if you go a couple years ago, I found a pair of new old stock skivvies. Guy had a bundle of them. I ordered a pair of size thirty-five because that's what or thirty-six that's what I wore at the time. Turned out in nineteen forty-two, I was a size forty, a size thirty-six. Mm. And so, how do you? Because I guess maybe because your experience in the garment industry, how do you know the the adjustments to make from sizing? Or, or was the original documents just based off so, of pure math in inches and centimeters? So the the first rule that we kind of had going into this, and I think, you know, what, you know, a lot of people, you know, have said how kind of great the sweaters look kind of side by side as far as like the knit and everything. But what I really kind of get jazzed about, which is that they measure exactly as the specification laid out. So from the very beginning, we were, we were not going to mess with the original measurements. And like, you know, Josh can speak to this a little bit more, but essentially no one has ever made a reproduction based on like the paper specifications, you know, having it in hand, right? That's awesome. Everyone has kind of done the thing where we, you, know, you take a garment and you cut it apart, mm -hmm. you know, and you kind of reverse then, engineer so it. You cut apart a 40, for example, right? You have a pattern from a 40, let's, let's say like a, um, let's say a wool shirt, right? And then you bring in someone called a grader and that grader is going to take, going to look at that and he's going to make the adjustments to the pattern for the different sizes up and down right so that you know that that's a whole job that someone has right that that's all they do is pattern grading but you know when we had the measurements we were we we're going to say like you know we do not want to mess with these at all don't deviate from the recipe yeah exactly we so want like, grandmother's you know, pie size here 40 measures out to that size 40 you know, to the original size 40 right um, you know, something that we kind of bumped into with Bronson and kind of caused like, you know, one of one of a handful of like small delays in the process was they were adamant about shortening the sweater. Right. Because they were like, these things are really long. We want like, you know, because, again, you have to think about what they're thinking of. Right. Which is they're thinking about more like casual streetwear kind of again, like a Buzz Rickson type audience. Right. But like, that's not what we're going for here, obviously. So we kind of had to have a real back and forth. And. What they decided on is they were going to do our run of 150 to our exact measurements. And then the next ones they do, they're going to do their thing. Which is fine because that makes yours all more 
sought after and and for what we do more authentic and it yeah, makes yeah. me feel lucky that i got in on the first run yeah for sure and i think one of the key things is that well some reproduction to go to charles and the grading some reproduction companies have bought instead of just 140 they've bought in like a 40 and a 42 but the thing is is garments get washed mm-hmm. garments stretch from use there there's very few, it's there's always um tolerances and tolerance stacking sometimes you have garments where oh and i own some of them and it's funny <laughs> where there's been where you get it you have you you might not know it but you get a defect original where where the person on the factory floor made an oopsie and instead of putting six inches of room here they only put three inches of room here and when you have all those sort of problems it might not just fuck up your size 38 it could that that can then scale out where you mess up all the range of sizes and there's one garment manufacturer or they don't know what the steps are between a small and a medium and a large, and they just base it off of modern conventions. And there's a current – I'm not going to name the company, but there's a current company that just dropped a reproduction where their size large it has the measurements for an original size small. And it's because they didn't understand how much bigger in the chest the size small was supposed to be because it was a winter garment. And that's the sort of problems that we were able to avoid by going with the original. And there was discussions, of course, with Bronson and other reproduction have had these sort of discussions where it's like, well, how do we fit the modern man? Well, I was going to say that I can imagine one of the things Bronson will do on their run, because even though they want to make timeless clothing that has a vintage look, they understand that modern day people have a modern day feel of what they think is correct. And, and as you stipulated, they're probably going to shorten the length, but I imagine they're going to lengthen the arms because yeah. I'm six foot five. I love the length. Now I could sit here and say, well, the sleeves aren't long enough, but for what we do, that's the authentic length of the sleeve. But I have yeah. long arms and so my watch shows people like to have to be able to bring their sleeves down and cover up their thumbs and do the whole hide the hands like their teenager thing. So I can imagine they won't go that long because they want to keep the appeal, but I can definitely imagine they'll probably want to add maybe two inches to there so that their mass consumers will have the modern day feel and appearance of a modern day garment with a vintage look. Whereas we want the authenticity. If it has a shorter sleeve, maybe because the military didn't want your sleeve getting in the way, or they had a intention for the design to pair with the other uniforms that you're going to wear on top of this stuff. And that's a kind of like two, that's kind of goes into two things. One, you have the problem and you're experiencing it that, well, the U.S. military during the war made some garments in different lengths. Some garments didn't make in any lengths. And this was a one size fits none in terms of length. If you were between five foot seven and six foot one, this is going to be pretty damn close as a regular. But if you were outside <laughs> of that range, you know, if you're Michael Phelps, you're out of luck. Um, well, but the, another way, the P forty one trouser, not to cut you off, but the P forty one trouser is a perfect example of that, and it makes sense. They were, they had certain waist size, but it was essentially one length fits all. Because why, when you're trying to mass produce uniforms for combat, why retool to have fifteen different lengths 
when you can have one length fits all, you give it to the guy and they go have it hemmed. You have it shortened and hemmed. And I was reading a post the other day saying, well, I got some HP41s from somebody and they're super long. It's like, yeah, so you can take them to a tailor and get them hemmed to the appropriate length. When you buy wool trousers from a person, you're supposed, like when I bought my wool trousers, I found, I don't know if they're still around. They're awesome. They're a Vietnamese couple. They used to own a industrial grade tailor shop. And so they still had all their machines, but in their house. And when I picked up my, um, my hemmed wool trousers and I lifted the cuff, it looked factory. It wasn't like some crappy stitching. It looked like it came from the factory and they were to the perfect length. And that's what you're supposed mm -hmm. to do. And then the other thing is, is that a lot of reproduction companies, when they try to improve something, it's a uniform system and there's these stacking tolerances. When they, or sometimes the improvement that they make is an authentic improvement, but the quartermaster corps didn't make that improvement until 1945. And mm -hmm. they've done <laughs> something that is like, was an authentic garment. It made it far for any impression anybody wants to use it to. And, and, or they assume oftentimes for good reason, that their customer is really dumb and they try to outthink their customer's stupidity. And all those different things as a, is setting yourself up for failure because when someone points out, hey, this part of your reproduction is wrong or I don't like this part of your reproduction, instead of being able to sit back and go, man, take it up with the Quartermaster Corps in 1943, I don't design the garments that that was fucking you know mm -hmm. little John and Dorio back in the day. I just reproduced them. Instead, you go well. I don't didn't like how this pocket fit in this waist, and it interfered with the cartridge belt, and people were complaining. So I look like there you you back yourself in a corner where you can't make any real defense. And I think Charles was really good at holding the line. And whenever Bronson tried to make a change. Of sticking like no this is what it was saying in august of 1942 we're doing it as it was done in august of 1942 because they probably did it for a reason and it might we it might not seem obvious to us at the moment but i'm sure the second we actually use these it will become obvious and also it's the correct thing and the correct thing is the correct thing yeah and some like something i think you know kind of you're you're hitting at josh which i think about all the time with this stuff right is that kind of um a lot of people don't know how garments are are made or kind of you know what the internals are like but everyone knows because every you know because again it reenacting is nothing but you know a very visual hobby right you know we know that when we put on you know say like you know a repro you know tanker jacket right and it doesn't look like any of the photos that we like pour over and study and we want to emulate and we're like, man, like this thing doesn't look right. And it's like the reason why it doesn't look right is because this was not manufactured correctly to the right. You know, it doesn't drape the right way. It's not bunching in the right way in certain areas that we are trying to emulate because someone was trying to think, you know, three steps ahead. Yeah. And, the, and that's kind of the problem. Sometimes we want this stuff to fit in a way that, you know, it's not the best. Because, again, when we're looking at these photos and we're trying to, like, you know, get a certain look which again this is what this hobby is about at the end of the day for you know for a lot of us right you know that's what's going to hold you up is yeah. you know, people thinking too much about about making these things and part of that is like manufacturers trying to work around the problem that you know they you had you had that problem people go off their modern jean sizes like oh i'm wearing a 36 from lee 
I'll buy an a, a original 36 and it being like, oh, the waist has gotten bigger. A 36 today is a 40, a 36 today is equivalent to a World War II 40. And them going, well, I'm just going to start calling my 36s 40s, which leads to a cascading problem of are do you do that right it creates confusion with your manufacturer and you might end up having the world war ii 36 size pockets put on your modern 40 that you lay that you tried to have as a 36 but you've called a 40 to make it easier for the modern customers which create problems now your dimensions or are off you get you yeah or you get other numbnuts who actually do know their proper waist size because they have to wear suits or they were paranoid enough that they took out a tape measure and measured it, who then go, well, I'm a 36. This is a 36. It's a reproduction of a World War II garment. I wear original World War II garments. I know what an original 36 fits like. Buy it. Get it. And it's like, this is not an original 36. And then covet. And that's why I'm a firm believer is, you're setting yourself up for failure and having a piss poor response when you make those changes. The key to success is just to do the original thing because then any problem isn't your fault. You have dead people to blame it on. You can blame it on some colonel at the quartermaster corps 80 years ago. I, I won't mention no your problem. I won't mention the outlet, but there is one particular gentleman who takes after Josh, and he just takes all these frustrations out in a newsletter about all you assholes <laughs> calling me about the color of my jackets not matching my tops and my pants don't match. The shit didn't match today because all this shit come from different people. Email. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. We won't bring it up. But there's one particular yeah. gentleman who just puts it out in a newsletter and says, fuck all you guys. I'm over it. And the other thing that you have to deal with. Yeah is people don't realize in 1939, 1942, when you measured your waist, you weren't measuring your hip bones. You're measuring above mm. your belly buttons because that's where your goddamn trousers go. I can't yeah. tell you how many events I've been to or some, somebody has ripped out the crotch in their trousers. <laughs> oh, these things are garbage. No, you're sagging them. This isn't 1993, and this isn't a hip-hop video. Pull the fucking things up over your belly button, cinch down your belt, and they won't rip out in the crotch. And yeah, I, mean, I think all of us, you know, we're kind of like saying the same thing, which is essentially that like, you know, the education of the consumer is like maybe one of the most important things that a reproduction manufacturer can do. But you would right? think in a hobby where people spend time pouring over photos because they want to quote unquote have their impression look just right, they would realize your zipper has a, t you, you have a 12 inch long zipper on your trouser because it starts above your belly button. Okay. <laughs> that's why your zipper is 12 inches long and not the six that's on your, your Levi's or your Dickies at home. Yeah. I mean, Josh, a few years ago did this great series on kind of like fitting the uniform, um, for like, you know, for our hundredth page, you know, that was like, you know, what was that like six or seven years ago at this point? Yeah, it was six or seven years ago. And what I use is the U.S. Army had a somewhat similar problem at the early in the war where civilian fashion fits were just different enough from the Army clothing fits that it was creating some problems. So the and they also, as opposed to being a small regular army, and thus you had people that were in the army forever and knew how army clothes was supposed to fit, they were having to train people how to have their get people into clothing to fit the army way, who may have only been in the army for a month. So they actually issued out detailed army regulations about how to measure and fit uniforms for the soldier. And basically we took those army regulations and created a photo interpretive guide to basically lay out in plain English 
what each step of that regulation is saying so you can kind of go through and be like, oh, this is how the service coat is supposed to fit. And for instance, you were talking about sleeve lengths. Shirt sleeves were meant to kind of fall at the um, wrist bone mm -hmm. because on a suit today, you're supposed to have about a matchstick's width showing from beyond your suit jacket cuff. On an army dress coat, your sleeve isn't supposed to show. Yeah. It was meant to fall at the wrist bone, and that also has knock-on effects about not getting in the way when you're doing stuff with your hands and fighting and stuff like that. And we kind of did that to help educate some people about like the proper fitment. And that's kind of like, you know, I think, an uh, important thing to keep in mind is that not a lot of people have kind of know that stuff. And I think more re reproduction manufacturers should just try to get their consumers a little smarter. I uh, want to point out too, for the casual listeners who's listening, it's like really were people that dumb that the military had to create a document on, on the proper way to wear their, their clothes. We have to keep in mind too, these citizen soldiers, they grew up during the depression. They grew up wearing pair of trousers that may have been their older brothers that now they didn't have money their parents didn't take them to tailors they weren't going down to walmart buying brand new clothes they were giving a their brother's hand-me-down pants and a rope make it fit roll up your cuffs and so these guys didn't a lot of them i'm not saying all of them but a lot of them growing up in the depression hell when they got to the military that may have been the first set of new clothes that actually semi-fit to their size that they may have ever experienced there's actually Ahead, I was going to say there's that, but I also think the same way that how the kids in high school today, how they wear their clothes mm -hmm. is different how, than how you wear a set of your, you know, uh, MCUs yep. or whatever your, yeah. your dungarees are, are just different in fit. How a high schooler, you know, going to, you know, George Washington High School in Iowa was wearing his is wearing his suit or clothes in 1941 is going to be very indifferent than how the army expects him to wear his service uniform in 1942 because while the the common fashion army clothing was probably more in line back then than we see in the common clothes and the army clothes today there was still enough of a difference to make a difference particularly since the army clothes then particularly the wool service uniform for the U.S. Army and for the Marine Corps, was a much more heavily tailored yeah. and size-specific range of garments than the small, regular, small, short, medium, regular, large, long, et cetera, sizing that we have for BDUs today, where for the wool service uniform, you have everything from 32 extra shorts to like 52 extra longs and everything in between. And I think being able to make sure that they're getting the right size and it's fitting right and looking good because a well-fitting uniform is not just important for combat efficiency in terms of having your you being able to move properly, but it's also important for morale because a soldier that looks good in uniform is generally a happier soldier and a happier so and a soldier with good morale is a happier soldier and a happier soldier is a soldier that's better able to win, you yeah. know. Ahead, just, just you know, really quickly, I know we're kind of on, on a tangent. Yeah, yeah, we, um, we have no yeah. time limit here, so just... yeah. But um, you know, I, I just kind of you know to your point about kind of you know being you know the the first you know clothes that you know someone might be wearing, kind of coming out of 
the depression or something like that. But um, you know, when when I was doing research um on my on my thesis, I found this great um kind of you know uh, garment uh, I don't can't remember the exact publication, but essentially like a, a trade publication um, for the garment industry from you know basically towards the end of the war. You know, the end of the war is in sight, and the topic of the the article basically like how are we going to get these guys dressed after coming out of the army, right? So what does the garment industry need to do? And one of the things that I think really stuck out to me in that article is they talk about like the average soldier coming out of the army is going to be accustomed to a much higher level of craftsmanship of their clothing than they would have been in civilian life. And that's something that like the garment industry is going to have to rise to meet because it's like, you know, again, kind of we can all kind of joke about kind of, you know, nothing ever, nothing ever fitting or like, you know, everyone's the same size in the army of nine. But like, that's not really the way the quartermaster corps was operating. And guys were getting accustomed to a, a very, very, like just a, a very high quality, you know, um, uniform, right? And a uniform for basically every, you know, every kind of weather condition and every kind of climate and guys were coming out of the service ready to be, you know, kind of served and dressed in a certain way that, you know, the, the garment industry was paying attention to. So I think it is like, you know, important to to note how, you know, basically, you know, cutting edge the, the army really was at the time. And to that point, when the Quartermaster Corps did a survey of soldiers in 1944, one of the top questions was, are you happy with the fit and fitment of the uniform you're currently wearing? And something like 90% of the soldiers answered yes. That like, crazy. It was insane, which is not as insane as a baseline, but all the more insane to realize the full scale of human sizes that you are getting for. It's not, this was not a volunteer army. This was a drafty army that was taking in the full range of everything from short Nisei soldiers going into the 100th battalion to large giants being recruited from the upper Midwest. Yeah. And they were all fitted in uniforms to a degree that they were like, yeah, I am happy with the way this fits. And it's an impressive logistical feat. And it's one of the things where I think not a not a lot of people really appreciate that. And it's, you know, it's one of the small things. It's like the ice cream ship stream World War II that really speaks yeah. to the industrial power and might and logistical acumen that allowed us to win the war. You know, yeah. Sir could speak could have just as easily said to the German soldiers and says, You have horses, we have general fucking motors. What were you thinking? You could have easily said we have a thousand sizes that fit us perfectly. We manufactured in the million, and you're using slave labor concentration campaign mates. What the fuck were you thinking? You know, yeah. our uniforms were union made. Yours were slave made. Like what the fuck? And totally. Is it? Yeah. Sometimes when I have conversations like these, I have thoughts I've never thought about before. And one of the thoughts I was thinking as you're talking about, you know. Charles talking about post-war, these soldiers coming into civilian life and how they're used to wearing uniforms. I was born in 78. Seen a lot of movies, TV shows, commercials, advertisements from the 60s and 70s, and that fades away. And one of the things that stands out as Charles was talking about that, and to now, it's in, it, I just had this realization I mean, I noticed it here and there of how far down the spectrum we've gotten from our distaste from uniforms in general life. You say we had a military, and then if you go back and you look at TV commercials from the 60s, 70s, print ads, 
Every trade had a uniform. If you're a milkman, you had a uniform, the white uniform, the white hat. If you're a mechanic, you had blue, uh, the blue uniform tucked in, the blue hat. Uh, United States Postal Service, they had a uniform. Janitorial services. Everybody had a uniform to the fact that it, industrial industries such as Syntax uniform rentals to when I worked at Wendy's in high school, we had to have the blue Wendy's provided pants. We had the little button-up polo that was gray with the stripes. Now you go to Wendy's and McDonald's, they're wearing T-shirts and jeans. Like, we've gone so far. Like, now we, like we have such a disdain from looking like everybody else. Like, there's no almost no uniforms at all. It's crazy how we went from every single trade had a uniform. It didn't matter if you're a milkman, a mechanic, a postal service worker, wearing a three-piece suit if you're working in a business downtown. It's like... Every sort of representation because of those generation coming out of the war and as we got older and the hippie movements and then the 80s and then the 90s and then where we are today, we've completely gone the other way when it comes to wanting to wear a uniform. Yeah. Boy, do I have a book for you. Um, <laughs> Paul, Paul Fussell, uh, who's a you know a World War II combat vet, 103rd uh, Infantry um, Division, sorry. Um, he wrote uh, Uniforms, um, basically all about kind of like American, you know, America's culture of uniforms kind of from the 1940s to, I believe it was written in the 90s, um, and, you know, kind of more abstract ideas of uniform as well, um, you know, ideas of, you know, uniform and counterculture and, and th things of that nature. But, you know, there's a little tenuous World War II connection, which is that he, you know, <laughs> was a combat vet. But, um, yeah, um, it is... Bring it back to your back and forth with uh, Bronson with uh, making sure they were falling to sizing and everything like that in the work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, sorry, I, 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 I wanted to get back to that story for a bit. And like, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I again, like you know, I don't know, um, you know, kind of where we want to necessarily go with the story of these uh, these jungle sweaters, but I think you know, yeah, we, we kind of won all those battles and it was great. I think honestly, the biggest thing that kind of was the 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 waiting was you know a lot of times you know, we were shipping back and forth. Um, you know, so they shipped us a sample. Mm -hmm. I had to ship a sample. Had to ship it back to them. We were waiting for a sample of the material. You know, things like that kind of ended up just taking a lot more time. Customs, um, so, but you know, we got there eventually. Um, but I do think you know um, everything was custom made. The the yeah. the yes. Yes. Thank, thank made, you, Josh. The, yeah. custom -made. the thing that made this as close as it was is that none of this was. And some reproductions do this, especially the lower end manufacturers go through a stock of fabric or knit, find something that's close, maybe re-dye it to make it a little bit closer and call it a day. Everything for this was totally custom-made specifically for these jungle sweaters, which is why they got as close as they did. How, yeah, which one so of you was responsible for the material choice of material? And I bring this up for a very important reason. And I was going to say this earlier. So and I think that was really both of us. And I was that was something that I was really prepared for because you know, we kind of had kind of loose conversations with a few other um, – you know, reproduction makers about like, you know, all right, we want to do this thing 100% wool. And basically that was like, you know, a complete non-starter, right? But going into the conversation with Bronson, we kind of knew that we wanted it to be 100% wool. And that was something, honestly, from the jump, they never pushed back on. You yeah. know, they were like, all right, like we can do that. But like, and, you know, price point wise, it's going to be, you know, about the same if we did it, you know, from cotton. It's not going to be that different. Um, but like, you know, what that means, though, is that your minimums are going up. Yeah. Right. Because they basically need to get yardage for, I believe, um, 500 jungle sweaters, which I was not prepared to handle. Well, the reason I bring this up is people hear wool. The first thing they think is itchy. 
And depending yeah. on the quality of a reproduction wool blouse you got for your infantry, uh, some of them you wear, wear without an undershirt and you're itchy and you're rubbing. I'm wearing this jungle sweater with no undershirt. I'm just, just what God gave me underneath. And it is not itchy. It does not, I don't, I don't feel like stitching, digging in. Cause a lot of people hear wool, like, man, when I wear that, when I wear my infantry blouse, if I don't have my under t-shirt on there, it's just driving me crazy and I'm breaking out. And I'm not saying I don't have sensitive skin. I'm saying the quality of wool that you guys and Bronson use to produce these sweaters, it feels like flannel. It feels like cotton. It does not feel like wool in any way, shape and or form. And that is stellar. Yeah. And that's something that Charles particularly noted. And I really didn't pick up on it because I was just looking at it as it was. But what Charles picked up on was that this is like, if you look at the wool described in the specification, this is extremely high end merino shirt wool. This is the stuff that smart wool, which is famous for very nice, easy, comfortable, machine washable wool. I'm not saying these shirts are machine washable. I haven't tried it and I don't recommend you try. Don't, but do, I'm that. Saying, don't do that. Listeners, but, please. But yeah, but what I'm saying is, is that the wool that the Army was expecting these to be made out of during the war was supposed to be very high quality, lightweight, and easy to wear. And that was... One, that's kind of what the wool industry was doing as a default during the wartime era. If you compare an original wool item to a modern reproduction wool item, that that difference in quality is oftentimes readily apparent. But two, it needed to be super lightweight and soft in the hand, not uncomfortable, because you the guys wearing these, particularly once it became a jungle item, were going to be wearing these almost certainly against bare skin, in the jungle mm -hmm. and it yeah. could be a hot itchy scratchy thing that is going to create skin problems mm -hmm. that is going to get a guy out of the action and charles noting that and kind of pushing towards us doing that properly and being helped by bronson i think is really what made this mm -hmm. kudos one of the you, best charles. and i say that as like the person <laughs> helped out but it, i think i can say truthfully that i've purchased or helped with a lot of reproduction garments in my time in the hobby. And there's some reproductions that I kind of put on a pedestal of barring none. This is just one of the best reproductions generally. And I could, and I say without really any ego that this is probably one of the best singular reproduction items I've ever seen. It's just so ridiculously close to my original that when Charles gave it to me he put the reproduction and the original in the same plastic bag and i you had to take them out of the bag and look that oh yeah this one's missing the button because they cut it off to use as a source for the reproduction buttons to really tell which one was the reproduction which one was the original was how yeah. we got and I, I kind of going back to, you know, what you were just saying and, and kind of one of your initial questions of kind of how do you take the quartermaster spec and kind of translate it? That was something that was a little new to me, which is, you know, kind of I again, I, I usually have not worked in, in knitwear. Um, it's not really something that I you know, I've spent a lot of time in and kind of the the 1940s technical terms for the grades of wool are slightly outdated sure. by today's industry. So that took a little bit of like kind of like, you know, um, kind of just like a little a little kind of, you know, a little research, not a lot, but just to kind of like figure out like kind of what grade of wool we're working with here. And that's, you know, that was kind of, it did unlock a lot for us as far as, you know, the, the quality. And I think, you know, again, when it coming to like, you know, bringing these, you know, and marketing them and doing the pre-sale and then, you know, kind of just selling them outright, that was something that I was 
hammering all of the time and all of the communication was that this is not like we call it a jungle sweater. It's not a sweater. This is a, basically a merino wool base layer. And like, you know, you can wear this on bare skin. It's super lightweight. If you hold it up to the light, you can see right through the damn thing. You know, this is, you know, this is not a sweater, you know. And I think, that, and also just that it was a base layer. It's supposed to fit tight. It's supposed to fit tight and close to the body. And, uh, you know, I've been really, um, people seem to have gotten it, right? And kind of going back to like educating the consumer, you know, people seem to have really understand what we're doing here. And they understand that, you know, it's supposed to fit a certain way and that, you know, it it's not a not a heavyweight sweater and they should size it accordingly. Now, yeah. do you have an agreement with Bronson that if you guys, if the demand is there and you want to do a second run of these, that they will go back to your specs or are you going to be limited to their new version of it that they're going to release next year? You know, we haven't um, discussed it with them. I actually just kind of spoke to them, uh, you know, just last week, just, you know, over email. Um, but, uh, you know, we, I, we haven't gotten there yet. I mean, I think, you know, essentially I would have to have, you know, 150 people clamoring, you know, to for 150 more. Sure. Because that's going to be, you know, I already, you know, originally they wanted me to take 200 of them. And I kind of, you know, negotiated them down to 150. Um, so, I mean, they are holding the bag on the rest of the, the wool knit jersey that they do. They did tell me they plan on doing jungle sweaters. But they do not plan on releasing them until, you know, potentially next year. Yeah. So, you know, they're taking their time. Again, you know, I think something that honestly, I think more repro makers could maybe learn from Bronson on a little bit, which is that, you know, they're kind of are following a slight, you know, seasonal system of like, all right, like we're going to do these like we're going to do these at a time that's convenient for us. And Rock's going to have everything in stock all the time. Right. Which I think can be a little frustrating for the consumer, but I think for the you know, manufacturer, I think it actually be easier. But um, I think, you know, if there was a niche, you know, if there was a lot of, you know, if there was a lot of people clamoring for these, I would consider it. I mean, yeah, that's a big if. <laughs> yeah, I think the part of the problem is, is that there, there's a finite number of people that want one of these, especially at, if, at this price point. And I think most everyone who wanted one has purchased one and that there's going to be 20 to 50 people that are really wishing they jumped on the boat and are going to be really sad that they didn't jump on the boat. And, you know, well, you guys may also find the way to cookie crumbles. You guys may yeah, also I mean, find that there is a large demographic of people out there who weren't aware that this was a thing, that this was yeah. an opportunity to get a pre-order in it. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, I re we really tried to reach as many people as, you know, like I, you know, you know, we posted basically, you know, all of the kind of the reenactor hangouts on Facebook that we could think of. You know, I, I posted everywhere from, you know, the um, the U.S. military form, like the real form, not the Facebook page to the vintage leather jacket form. Like, you know, I was really trying sure. to, you know, cover all of my bases that I could. I mean, I will say, like, kind of when we were in the pre-sale, you know, era of this, right, like. There were numerous times where kind of like sales, you know, pre-sales kind of like plateaued where I was like, fuck, like we reached, we reached peak jungle sweater. And, you know, I just got an order like, you know, like last week and I was like, you know, so it's still, still trucking. Which so I, are you guys I, officially I'm, sold I'm out? Happy with. Are you yeah. officially, you're officially sold out? Yeah. As, uh, yes. Um, there, there's, there's chance that there might be like, you know, some off sizes, dozen, you know, overflow. 
Um, but, you know, if there is that, will, you know, I will make an announcement to that effect. I'm kind of, you know, but we, yes, we are officially sold out. Now, for two guys who have such a passion for garments as you guys do, if you decide to venture on a project similar to this again, is there a particular garment from the era, maybe World War One or, hell, you know, Korean War? Is there a garment you guys have kind of been toying around with saying, A, is there, would it be worth it, and B, is there demand for it, and what would that particular item be? So there has been discussions of a number of different garments, Yes, and on the research for those garments, the problems that we've been more focused on, once again, is the logistics of how to get it made. In some cases, there's licensing issues mm-hmm. that create hurdles. Anything to, with an EGA on it? Yeah, getting <laughs> stuff made. And uh, yes, it, it's something we've discussed. And I think with our kind of, I, it's given how much discussion we just had about all the research and time, but are no frills sort of like, this is the way the quartermaster made it in 1943, take it or leave it approach to trying to have in terms of measurements and specs and everything like that, I think has some opportunities that it and Charles has a real unbelievable knack of just spotting these details and working with the manufacturers and seeing these projects through to the end that I, I hope that like, We'll have years of fun partnerships in this. You know, uh, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely some stuff on the horizon. I think you know the the two biggest things that I think you know I think we're going to be keeping in mind is one is I think tethering a product to an event, you know, does you know it, it helps so much, right? Uh, kind of like having that, yeah, having that built-in market kind of ready to go, kind of to get you off the ground. I think is just so important. Um, then the other thing too is that you know, and I think you know, Josh and I might kind of differ on this a little bit, but I, I think you know, the way going forward would be, you know, this was interesting to work with Bronson. I do think you know, the move would be to do our own, you know, would, would be to produce our own stuff, um, just because you know, it, it it would cut down on kind of the the timing a little bit, and it would also kind of cut down on essentially like you know, the uh, the back end cost. Um, sure. which, you know, kind of, you know, everybody was kind of, you know, taking a slice of the pie in a way that kind of left us. Uh, everybody wants you know, to be quit. Basically just, you know, just squeaking by on breaking even. Okay. Here, yeah. Here's a fun thought experiment. And um, Josh, you'll, you'll get the advantage because you'll go second. We'll make Charles go first. So he won't have time to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Money aside, order numbers aside, just fantasy Island here. We're doing a thought experiment. What's an item that doesn't exist in current reproduction world that you would wish want to make, and what's an item that is readily available that you think you could make better? You go first, Charles. Oh man, I, this is just because it's been on the mind so much. Because it's probably going to be something that we're going to do in the future. Um, something that's not available that I don't think anyone's ever reproduced, you know, is uh, the Marine Corps, uh, like you know, kind of mid to late war green uh, boxers. Right. So they're made from like a cellular cotton. Um, So, you know, people have made them. They've made them out of kind of just regular poplin or a kind of plain weave, um, you know, uh, kind of regular uh, boxer fabric. But no one has reproduced them in the correct kind of like loose, open, uh, you know, cellular cotton fabric. And I think that's kind of something that, again, we have this built in, um, you know, we have the Pelu event coming up in the summer. We have Okinawa the year after. It's kind of a built in market for it. I think that that's, you know, a very doable 
uh, doable thing. And what's and the then, item that you think you can do better that's readily available? I'm wagering. I'm going to say that I think Josh and I are probably going to be the same. And it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, it's going to be an M43 field jacket. It's just like, just nail it. And again, like, you know, we, we got, you know, we got the stuff for it. Again, you said, you know, money is no object, which would be a big part of this too. Um, <laughs> it would be, it's, it's less complicated to build a high-end suit than to build a 43 jacket. I have, don't make me rant about the 43 jacket. The 43 jacket is the McLaren F1s of combat field garments. Yeah. G3 combat shirts. Eat your heart out. What is it about the higher end currently available in 43 other than the fact that when you buy it, it looks like it's made out of polyester because it's got so much goddamn scarch guard on it. When I bought my M43s from uh, <laughs> World War II Impression, I looked like I was on my way out to a disco in 1983. I'm standing in a woods in goddamn Georgia and you can see the sun shining off me because I got so much goddamn scotch guard on me. Other than that... <laughs> I, Josh, I'll, I'll kind of give like, you know, kind of my brief thing and then you can kind of go into it. I, I think there's a, there's a few major things that have held back uh, reproduction makers from from nailing the 43. Um, the first one is is that there's numerous specs in a way that there aren't of a, or should I say there are numerous specs that actually you know create serious change to the garment in a way that isn't the case with other pieces, right? So you know you you have all these specs. So again, kind of going back, you know, way back in the conversation of what Josh was saying of like if you took two size 40s with different specs and you didn't know that they were different specs and you say all right like make a size 40 out of these two like you're 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 already done you're cooked right and then also the 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 way the sizing on the 43 worked is so i mean how many times have we all and all of us have seen this i see it on ebay literally every day it'll say you know 43 jacket you know 44 regular and i'm like oh man i got it it's my jacket and you go on it's like no 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 it measures out to a 44 regular in that person's mind because again, the way that the 44s were measured out is not the same as, you know, just taking a tape measure and it being 22 inches, you know, pit to pit, right? So I, I, that that's a big part of it is just kind of the, the uh, getting that right. And then I think Josh can talk more about the construction of the of the thing. Yeah, there's, a, there's so many little details in construction. So first of all, there's this internal suspension system that is literally hidden in the garment, unless you are crazy son of a bitch. Excuse my French. And that's like one of them. <laughs> yeah. Or you read the specifications. Like someone in this video has. <laughs> or so there's that. Then there's other small mile things. So for instance, uh you're familiar there's the liner and there's the external shell, but what a, a lot of garments miss out on is that there's an internal fabric that's put into the collar of the garment that gives it some more shape and that's why so many reproduction jacket collars are so soft and wrinkly and crunch up and don't and curl at the ends when they're used don't have that i don't want to say stiffness because it isn't stiffness i, I want to say like form where it's yeah. still form is the exact right word yeah you i could this is an original i could ball up and stuff like that and i undo it and it still has a good triangular point it still folds cleanly and with heft. It's not like just a soft. And your collar ends aren't curling up like elf shoes. Exactly. And that's because yeah. there's an extra piece of fabric that was sewn in there to accomplish that exact purpose. And there's 
all these little hidden details and there's the grading and sizing and everything like that and it's like a suit jacket there's it's not just the it is very much like a suit jacket there's all this stuff inside of it that's hidden from plain view and you not just need a 40 you need a whole range of sizing to get an understanding of the grading there's the multiple specs like charles said and it means that if you and if you fuck up one thing you you snowballs it it just it snowballs so there was a reproduction of the 43 jacket where they messed up the top the second from top button placement on the fly and because they messed that up it meant that the collar instead of being authentic was like miniature and you're Mm -hmm. like that that's so minor that shouldn't really matter and then you see someone put it on and it's like kind of like the seinfeld skit with the little white speck on the sweater it's like all you (laughs) see and it's all the worst because it's the part of the jacket that's right next to the guy's head. Yep. Yeah. And this goes back to, you know, again, something that we were talking about earlier, which is that a lot of people might not understand looking at a garment, what makes it fit a certain way and what makes it drape a certain way. But it's the kind of thing where it's like you put on that repro and you know you're wearing a repro and so does everybody else. And it just, because it just does not drape, does not hang on you the right way. And that's like the thing with the internal suspension system. Like, why should that matter? It matters because it totally changes the way the jacket falls on your body. And again, like, you know, you can just look at photos all day long and you're just like, I just don't get it. Like, why does my jacket not fit that way? Why when I put grenades into the pocket, does it shift weirdly? Why does it like, and it, yeah. So my answers to those questions are actually different than Charles's. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. Number (laughs) one thing that... Nobody produces on the market, and if I had, and if I was God King of the world, and I like, if you won the lottery money, tomorrow, like the Powerball, you you know, money yeah. wasn't an issue, and time it's wasn't be, an issue. It's going to be shoe packs. It's going to be shoe. Uh, packs. I, I I've been nobody. Nobody will ever reproduce them. <laughs> I've resigned myself to that fact, but I want shoe packs so bad, and it's because my one true love in terms of reenacting it has been the hundred from a shoe division the hundred from a shoe division deployed overseas in shoe packs and fought in shoe packs until early march of 1945 for the layman who's listening what's the difference between a shoe pack and a boot so a shoe pack is basically the ll bean boot gone to war and yeah. specifically we're talking about oh a duck pack. boot yeah we're talking about shoe pack 12 inch and shoe pack 12 inches different than the early war shoe pack low, which looked much more like a bean boot. It had a two piece leather upper, had a different sole pattern, all this other stuff, which means that the reason it's never been properly reproduced is that you need a complicated multi piece rubber mold to do the lowers. It has to be, and you have to have a separate one for each whole size. And, yeah. and you'd, and that's just, Think about all the kvetching uh, that at the front was doing about having to get a comparatively simple but still very expensive shoe rubber mold made and multiply that by an order of magnitude. Like L.L. Bean, just in the past six, seven years to the increased demand of bean boots, has only gotten a second set of molds for their duck boots. And, you know, they're L.L. Bean. That yeah. gives you an idea of how expensive and out of touch 
getting a custom set of all the necessary sizes of shoe pack rubber molds are, let alone the manufacturing of the overly complicated compared to the simple one-piece leather upper of the bean boot of the two-piece sewn together style of the shoe pack. And it's why it's out of touch, but uh, out of reach, I should say, for like of ever being reproduced, but what why I would love to have it reproduced because not only did the 100th infantry division unit during it, most of it, most of its time in combat, almost every 7th army unit used it during the majority of its time fighting in the winter of 44, uh, 45, and even units that came to the 7th army late in 44, 45 used them for a period of time like the 101st Airborne. It's a very necessary piece of footwear to tell the story of the 7th army during the winter of 44, 45, the only options currently available are increasingly fragile originals. And Which, yeah, I've I've destroyed two sets of originals in my reenacting career. You know, and then one was just last year. So yeah, it, it's, it's rough. That once they're gone, they're kind of they're kind of gone, and it's kind of sad because they truly never ever will be reproduced, and. If so, and if I am proven wrong, if some if next week Bronson announces that they're making these, I will like. I don't know what I'll eat to like really prove home how. And he'll like, eat I'm, it here on the show. We'll around. bring him back. I'll eat an original shoe pack. I'll eat an original shoe pack. You know. <laughs> What's I'll, the I'll, one I'll item that you think? Yeah. You can... And so investors, if you're listening, we are totally open to do shoe packs. <laughs> What's totally, the um uh. If you invested in Uber, you know, <laughs> but what, if you're looking for, if you're looking to be fleeced from your money, I mean, you're looking for a good investment opportunity. If you thought it was you a know, good idea to make an electrical pickup truck out of stainless steel and now curiously <laughs> concerned that it's rust in the rain, we got an item for you. But, <laughs> man, like, I, you know, I promise as a good return on investment to the investors in that project as the investors in Lyft. There you yeah. go. <laughs> so, what's the next item, though, John? What's the, what's uh, what's the, the one, one you, you can? Uh, everybody reproduces, but nobody has done well. It's Jeep caps. I yes. have the specification for it. It has detailed measurements. It has a drawing of the bill shape that you just print out, you place upon the fiberboard, and you cut it out. And I've sent it to manufacturers, both low end and high end, and all the reproduction Jeep caps look like dog shit. The only and two it, differences I've seen in descriptions is either A, you can order the cheap one with the cardboard in the bill, or you can order the higher end with a leather insert in a bill. But other than that, the cut and shape's all the same. They, I've, I've even sent it to a high-end company that makes some of the highest-end reproductions known to man. And when they released their Jeep cap, it was disappointing, to say the least. Yeah. It did, like, stay right there. And and I think this kind of goes to what we're you know what I was saying as well too of like if we're gonna do this like do more of this kind of stuff we kind of gotta do it because like you know I think Josh's frustration especially with like the Jeep caps and also with other reproduction makers that he's worked with you know in the past where you know he's done a lot of work done a lot of really like you know hard yards and then for it to kind of get thrown out at the end you know we need to be able to kind of see from start to finish and make a product that we can be you know happy with so this is. The said high-end reproduction Jeep cap that mm -hmm. I sent them all the data package on. This is how it fits. You look like, like Radio from MASH. 
Yes. <laughs> Here is an original size medium, which this is supposedly an exact reproduction of. And this is how it fits. It's just total. It's not even. It just t fits totally different. You could see it like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you know, the, the other a, one, the one's like one, a like five-gallon like, hat, and the other one's a seven-gallon hat. Like exactly. you're, you're you're skating in a mall in like you know the mid '90s. You know that's what. <laughs> and that's kind of like the infuriating thing is that like it's because this is another knit item. It tells you the size for everything. It actually gives you the exact build dimensions, and they still didn't quite match some. They didn't make the mark, and I'm like. You know, it's kind of like when the teacher puts the answers on the board and you still flunk <laughs> the test. It's like, they, what, what do I have to take the test for you? It's yeah. kind of the reaction. And that's kind of like why of all the things that like I think we could like anyone could do a better if just follow the specification. Josh, that's because yeah. I want your head to explode this week and I'm going to give you a homework <laughs> assignment. Yeah. Clearly, there's never been a more bastardized piece of military equipment in modern day fashion than the M43 jacket. I mean, people make it not even as reproduction just because everybody wears them on TV. It takes yeah. some digging. I found it before. You remember the TV show Lucifer that came out a few years ago? Guy, he, he it was a USA special that was on Netflix. Basically, he's the devil and he comes to town and he decides he don't want to be bad anymore. Reason I bring it up, like the worst recreation of an M43 jacket, like the opening scene of like season four, he's wearing some bastardized Hollywood, has the Vietnam era zipper. But here, here's the best part. For some reason, the costume the production thought it would be cool. Or maybe maybe they bought it this way from the fashion designer, right? They thought, let's take this horrible recreation of a M43 jacket and we're going to put fake silhouettes where the patches used to be so you can see like there's a square of an and it's clearly not even a military jacket it's just a modern day recreation to look like an m43 the cut's all wrong and a zipper but you see like a a darker green where a nameplate would be and then they have chevrons but the silhouette of where the chevrons are are way too high up on the sleeve and so not only did they bastardize the m43 they put fake silhouettes from where it faded and you can see the original color from where the chevrons used to be but you can, yeah there's a I'm picture looking at, i'm looking at it right now yeah i was gonna say there's a picture on google he's wearing this thing and it's the most god-awful recreation yeah of i mean you know i think it's you know it's, it's interesting right because like you see the um you, you see the evolution of the field jacket right you know kind of going back to the 41, but let's for the sake of this conversation from the 43 through the 65, right? And, you know, clearly, like, you know, they're making improvements. Sometimes, you know, I don't like the 65, but that's a whole other, you know, kettle of fish. But you know, they're making these improvements, you know, kind of going on. And then you have, you know, designers coming in, you know, later on. And I think, you know, kind of reinterpreting, like, you know, taking, like, elements from the 51 elements from the 43 and elements from the 65 and kind of like you know making this like other field jacket you know i mean yeah i do always find that kind of stuff interesting when you kind of have these uh you know th this isn't a good example of this but kind of like a what if jacket you know there's a there's a manufacturer mr freedom which i think everyone kind of you know probably knows and one of his uh kind of you know guiding lights of kind of the stuff he makes is you know well like it could have existed um and sometimes you know it's interesting and sometimes it's not um not, not saying his work i think his work is always really interesting but, but i think general. one of the better more mainstream manufacturers at this is uh uh ralph Lauren, 
And I think it's because he, unlike, I think a, he actually has a very large reference collection. And Oh, I think yeah. a large reference collection is key. And I think a lot of these other manufacturers get themselves in hot water because they're like, I'm going to do a field jacket. They send their designer to like Joe's Army Navy. Yeah. They buy the first field jacket they get and it kind of, and they just work from that. And I think in many ways, having a fuller understanding of all the jackets and all the things like that actually gives you a more interesting perspective to make Yeah, I will changes say the from it. I And was very fortunate a few years ago to spend time in the uh, in the Ralph Lauren uh, like you know reference library. So like basically it's massive, basically I can't even imagine how big it was. Essentially, it just looked like a store, right? It's just racks and racks and racks, and it's divided by like kind of you know here's all the military stuff, here's all the Western stuff, and like you know they really do have like everything in there imaginable. Um, Some really, really neat stuff. Like you could go to the store in New York and they were selling like original World War II A2 jackets that Yeah. is part of the store display. And I think that kind of deeper understanding in that reference collection that you got to see kind of allows you it's the best way to describe it. A good jazz musician could play good, could play any sort of music, but his deep understanding of music is what allows a good jazz musician to improvise well and do something good and i think the same thing applies to fashion if you want to improvise and I will, yeah the I rails will say when it comes to fashion doing this you have to have that same deep understanding of what you're kind of working with I will say the Ralph Lauren Boondockers, those look pretty damn good. Have you ever seen those? yeah They five hundred dollars, no thanks. I'll buy some from what price? I mean, I'll buy some World War II impression, but they make some. Before we wrap it up, Yeah. fun fact: Did you, Josh? You probably know the name, and well, Charles would for. Todd Snyder, familiar with the designer Yeah. Todd Of course. Snyder? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Todd Snyder teamed up with PF Flyers in 2016. You remember that run? Yeah. He made a, a run of some... His, his recreation of the Jungle Shoe. Once again, they're like $500, but like he actually said, hey, let's let's recreate the World War II olive green Jungle Shoe, and he teamed up with uh, PF Flyers. And I'm looking on them online
they reproduced uh yeah i'm trying to find a sweatshirt in that color and i had one in my dearly departed rottweiler uh destroyed it no i did not know that no (laughs) so i no longer have it and they do not pop up on ebay and i have looked um but and i just and i was a little sad because i wanted a blue one for the niche 101st reference but i also just like them because the afterhood style because i find it more comfortable and it's a little like thing and bronson makes a fantastic one it's super heavy weight and is like really really warm there's and these are seen being worn by marine paratrooper instructors army paratrooper instructors and are just common sportswear during the time but that's kind of like the cool sort of collabs that you see where sometimes going back in time and seeing some vintage styles i think and going like oh, why did we depart from that and let's make that as something that I, I'm liking that a number of manufacturers are more doing, like Todd Snyder and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I know this wasn't the question, but I think like as far as like companies to look out for too, as far as like people who are making stuff for a fashion audience that could, you know, theoretically be used in this area. You know, I mean, a lot of them are out of Japan, but like, you know, I look at the stuff that like Warehouse Warehouse & Co. out of Japan is doing and like, you know, like they, they do like HBT, like, you know, second pattern HBTs that... I think would probably rival like, you know, any repro, you know, that you're getting hmm. um, and like other stuff like that, that, like, you know, where there really are, um, they're making really good, high quality stuff at a level that no repro maker in the States is kind of touching. Yeah. And I think we're in many ways, and this is a longer discussion. I think we're kind of in a, both a dark spot in terms of the current reproduction market. I think, but at the same time, I think we're in one of the brighter spots just in generally in getting authentic clothes because we're no longer restri- it was in the 1990s and you wanted a, you know, a reproduction, you know, jacket of some sort. You had to go to one of the, the few manufacturers, whether it was old World War II impressions or new Columbia, you know, mm-hmm. let's but let's today, put a pause on that. I think we'll, I think. Yeah. I think we can clearly do another two hours, and so I want yeah. to schedule you I'm guys. Sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. no. I, 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 I love this, so we're going to schedule a part two episode. We'll wait a few oh, weeks, sure. and we'll get yeah. back together because, I mean, we can clear. I mean, we we've already done 145 minutes, so we can oh, definitely man. do this again. Um, Sally, I got work tomorrow. This is classic, Josh I, and I. No, it's perfect. <laughs> go and go. I loved. I love when I have guests on that we can do these long formats, and so we're definitely going to schedule a part two. Yeah. Um, I just want to say this before we wrap up. I was never a suit guy growing up and because when most people wear suits, they don't fit right. Unless you go rent a tux for a wedding or something, they don't fit. You guys will love this torture. You ready for this? Um, if you guys go on Apple plus, they remade a, they remade the right stuff a few years back from the movie about Mm -hmm. the, the space program. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, executive producer. You guys remember the, movie that was out in the late 80s early 80s called oh, the right stuff yeah, of course yeah well they remade, <laughs> they, re, they remade it into a 10 part miniseries that's still on apple plus they filmed that down here and i got hired to do two episodes as a background actor mm-hmm. i'm in episode one i'm clearly behind the principal characters i'm at a i'm at a navy bar and i'm dressed up in a navy uniform you can see me drinking in the background while the two principal actors are talking episode four it's New Year's Eve, 1959. It's the NASA New Year's Eve party, and I'm an extra in that as well. Well, you got to have a suit. So they sent mm-hmm. me up to Universal Studios. 
first off, the wardrobe lady was pissed. <laughs> she seen my six foot five ass walking in. She goes, I told him we had enough tall people. No more tall people. Tell them no more <laughs> tall people. She said, don't worry. I'll get you taken care of. She measures me out. Two weeks later, I show up for shoot day. They got a three-piece 1959-era-cut Ralph Lauren suit measured to me. And the wow. first time I've ever had a personally measured suit, let alone a Ralph Lauren quality, wear that for two days of shooting, and then I have to give it back. And <laughs> <laughs> I can't take it with me. The only thing I got from that shoot is I have the napkin that I had at the Naval Bar that has the Navy logo on it and the pack of fake cigarettes they gave me I stole off the set. But I wish I could have <laughs> kept that goddamn three-piece Ralph Lauren suit. And that is where I learned... And I had to give this information to the wedding I was at because the guys didn't know. That is where I personally learned about the button rule on jackets. Oh, sure. Yeah. Unbutton when you sit down. Sometimes, always, never. And you, yeah. you've only buttoned one of the two buttons because it messes up, as Josh was pointing out earlier, the cut and the way that the suit jacket lays. And yeah. I was at a wedding not too long ago where I had to pay $269 run a tuxedo for one day. I'm like, <laughs> no. Just the top button. Don't button the bottom button. When he's, I'm like telling it because they're all young. They're all cats in their twenties. They never worn a nice suit before. And sure, that's yeah. What, because you know, unless you've done it, you oh, I just button both of them and I sit down and it's just, just <laughs> nope. No they did that it. in the crown. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> but to that end, this has been a two hours of three men yes. talking about wardrobe, and we're gonna wrap it up with another episode. Thank you guys so much. Where can people find you if they want to track you down on social media? I know you have a Substack channel. Where can people track you down and? Uh, Oh, sure. Um, I'll go first. Um, yeah, you can find me like on my personal Instagram, which is like, uh, I believe it's Charles underscore McFarlane. Um, so M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-E. But um, you can also find me at Combat Threads. So Combat.Threads. And you can just put that into either Instagram or uh, into Substack and you can find me there. And yeah, you could find me on Facebook at the Hunter Fincher Division Reenacted. I'm one of the admins of that page. Or you could... Uh, showing me up. I should have said that too. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Or the real way you could find me is if you bug Charles and say, hey, can I can you tell me how to message Josh? I will get your message. And then because I'm a busy like not this is going to sound like I'm a busy attorney. I'm probably going to get your message. Be like, oh, I need to really respond to that when I get home. And then I get home and I'm so fucking tired that I fall asleep in but bed. I'll, I'll bug him, though. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> And as always, <laughs> and don't respond for a week. But then, I'll, but I'll, but I'll, uh, but I'll respond and try to be as helpful as I can. I, I yeah. not as mean as I look. And as always, you all can head over to wtspworldwar2.com and click on the homepage. You'll see the page for this episode where we'll have all the links you need to find them on their social media as well as to see what these wonderful gentlemen look like. And while you're there, please make sure you click on that Patreon link. Sign up and subscribe. It goes a long way to support what we do here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. And let's not forget, head over to YouTube.com, type in D410media, and you can find all of our What's the Scuttlebutt podcast content. You can find my other World War II content, my fishing content, and much, much more. Thank you, guys, and we'll be with you all again next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>